The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. Each episode, we look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. When my producer Mary and I were discussing ideas for an episode that brought to life how people cope with uncomfortable feelings and anxiety, we asked ourselves the question, what story would we want to hear? We were sitting in a Starbucks like on a Tuesday morning and we both sort of just said at the same time, we want to hear about someone's struggle with an eating disorder. We want to know about eating disorders. Why? Well, that might take hours to unpack, but let me just say this. I defy anyone, women and men, living in a society with plenty of food to tell me they eat only when they're hungry, that they always listen to their body, stop when they're full, never think about how they look or dieting, etc. I'm an American cisgendered white woman in her 40s. I have been on a diet quite literally since I was 12. When I was younger, my eating was more about the desire to fit in because I was six foot one in seventh grade and I was large and I felt very unfeminine. And I felt for many years unworthy of love. I'm still working on that one. When I got older, though, eating became about control, soothing all the feelings. Eat less. You're in control. You're fierce. You got this binge or reward yourself with food, oh, that means you're letting go, either to smother bad feelings or feel a release of sorts. Of course, then you wake up with guilt and you have to regain the control. Fast that day, exercise a lot. Now I do that a little bit with alcohol, which I'll talk about in a bit. I don't think I have a full-blown eating disorder anymore, but I have disordered eating. I probably think about my weight, my food intake, my time spent working out for cumulative hours each day. And if I have a scary work event coming up, I will diet so I feel more in charge of the situation. I'm a little obsessed with my food intake and my exercise and my clothes and how they fit and it's all about control and it gives me something to focus on that maybe isn't how I feel. And even saying this really ashames me, and uh, I can't believe I'm saying it. It wasn't until I talked to Melissa Gerson that I realized maybe all the desire to control life through food and exercise was a way to channel my bad feelings and my anxiety. Think about calories. Don't think about the fear that you're a failure or you're worth nothing or everything that we've talked about on the show. Gerson says eating disorders serve a function. They're functional. And they're very intertwined with anxiety and depression. Not to mention food is a loaded subject in the workplace, whether you're surrounded by snacks, birthday cakes, anxious about eating with your colleagues, or feeling self-conscious about your body. It can feel like a real minefield for many of us. So to talk about all of this, our guest, Melissa Gerson, she is a licensed clinical social worker and therapist who has dedicated her career to treating eating disorders. 
as the founder and director of the Columbus Park Center for Eating Disorders in New York City. She's out there working with patients who suffer from eating disorders, and she has her own story of eating in control, which we will hear. So, Melissa, you you have said that eating disorders serve a function to the person who has one, even if it's an unhealthy one. What is that function? There can be multiple functions of disordered eating behavior. Often people describe feeling that the behavior gives them a sense of order or organization, especially when we're talking about restricted eating. Mm-hmm. Um that experience of controlling the food that you consume for some people can just feel like the ultimate in, in organization, control, grounding. We also hear people talk about kind of the opposite behavior, which might be overeating. And, and I think most of us have experienced ourselves using food as a way of self-soothing, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of classic, I'm going to sit down with a, with a bunch of bonbons and watch some television and zone out. Um, and, and so for many of us, that can be healthy and fine on occasion. But for many people who struggle with disordered eating, using food as a self-soothing measure or, or a coping mechanism can be really destructive because it's often in a way so so effective at helping the individual numb out or disconnect or self-soothe that it it serves as the primary coping mechanism at the expense of all others which would more likely support a healthy and engaged lifestyle so you're saying that the sort of eating less or really controlling your eating gives you a sense of mastery and control, whereas maybe the letting yourself go, whether it's with a binge or a giant, you know, for me, it's a bowl of pirate booty or something like it's that release (laughs) that it can feel it can be both, but both are equally rewarding. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the central appealing factors of the eating behavior for someone who's stuck in a disordered eating cycle is the familiarity of it Mm -hmm. because the behaviors can almost become a trusted friend and a closest relationship. And so when, for example, after a really, really stressful day, there's almost a looking forward to that comfort and familiarity of the behavior Mm -hmm. because everything associated with the behavior is well-known and predictable. So you just know that when you get home at night and you're alone and you have the food there, uh, you you know exactly what's going to happen from there, that there's going to be this experience of immediately letting go, getting into a comfort zone, uh, having no one to kind of disturb you or upset you, sort of in the moment you're free of judgment. The problem is that when that generally pleasurable experience ends, there are repercussions. You also say that anxiety and eating disorders can be cyclical, that people might control their food to deal with their anxiety, but that a lack of food can also fuel anxiety, make it worse, and and even change your brain chemistry. Can you talk about that and a little bit about the relationship between anxiety and eating disorders? 
I think that the most interesting piece of this for listeners might be to hear a little bit about the effects of starvation on the brain. Mm. Uh, There was a study back in the 1940s where they had these um, young army men that were screened really thoroughly for any kind of psychiatric condition. All of the men were really young, robust, healthy guys, and they wanted to see what happened to these men under the effects of starvation. So essentially, they observed the men in, in a control period for about three months and then thereafter began to cut their calories mm-hmm. pretty dramatically and watched what happened to the men under the effects of starvation and weight loss. And they observed that these men who had previously been friendly, outgoing, gregarious young guys, many of them, all of them actually, became very withdrawn, introverted they were isolating. They became totally focused on their food. When was the food going to arrive? What was the food going to be? If the meal was served just a little bit late, they'd get very agitated. Uh, they wanted to talk about recipes and agriculture. Some of them developed rituals around the eating where they would move the food around on the plate, cut it into small pieces, savor every mouthful. Essentially, the men develop features of anorexia under the influence of starvation. So it really tells us so much about the eating disorders that we treat because the the brain essentially is under the influence of starvation and and changes functionally and structurally so that it it leads to a whole host of symptoms. Mm-hmm that are what we really consider the, the core symptoms of anorexia. Now, now that's a pretty extreme example uh, in that for many people, you're not, you're not starved in a starvation experiment. But for those of us in the treatment field, first off, we really understand anorexia very differently because of a study like that. And we really know that that refeeding is essential because so many of the problem behaviors and problem feelings and experiences and cognitions really are going to be corrected through feeding, feeding alone, restoring weight and feeding. Wow. And then on a, you know, on a broader level for the general public, what it also tells us is that if we're going to fiddle with our bodies in a way that many of us do through dieting or different kind of fad experiments with food, we really run the risk of causing more more problems than we really would anticipate, mm-hmm. in particular when we begin to push our bodies toward the very bottom of our healthy weight range. If you think about the body as this really well-run machine, it's really got a happy place. Within that happy place, the body has a sense of equilibrium. It knows it's getting the food that it needs. Mm-hmm. But if you begin to trend toward the bottom of that range and Well, that's where the brain can kind of kick in and say, hey, something's not right here. One thing, though, that it seems to me is that I've known a lot of people just anecdotally and and even myself who in a time of anxiety may start rigidly controlling food intake. Absolutely. Why, Why do we do that as humans? What does that give us? Of course, in our lives, there's so little that we can control. And food is such an easy target in the sense that it's around us all the time. It's 
something that we as a society are very focused on. So there's endless information and access to information about food. And it's so quantifiable. Mm -hmm. You can measure in calories and fat grams and carbohydrates. You know, so there's this way that you can just completely pick apart food in such a way that you can create any kind of manipulation you'd like to satisfy your interest. For example, if you're someone who really wants to be healthy and and maybe even have some anxiety about about your own health, you can begin a mission to improve your nutrition and you can read endless articles online um, and and really kind of bathe in the, in the excitement of all of the different healthy food options that are out there. And not get judged for it either, frankly, right? People aren't going to negatively judge exactly. you if you say, you know, I, I'm going paleo, whatever. Exactly. In fact, in our society, oftentimes we admire people who show that commitment mm-hmm. or that ability to restrain themselves in that way, to resist pleasure. Mm -hmm. In some ways, we elevate people in our society who are able to follow these kind of more extreme approaches to eating. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I want to ask you a question, actually, about food at work and, and how it um, fits into that sort of display. Um I remember when I was first working in media in New York City, and I was very young, and I sort of just observed people naturally that a lot of the really senior women would barely eat at events, you know, and I would, of course, be digging into my dessert. It just, it wasn't done. And I want to talk about food at work and and maybe what you might counsel a patient who's who's dealing with some anorexia or control issues. I mean, we spend so much of our waking moments and mealtimes at work. We we share meals with colleagues and clients. There's tables of free food, as you said, but we also, we want to be controlled. We don't want to show weakness. Women, especially, I think, you know, it's, it's, we don't want to eat too much or enjoy food too much or seem out of control in front of other people. 
how does how does someone who's dealing with this in their head get a handle on food at work in in a healthy way? It's so challenging, and it starts young. Mm-hmm. I'm working right now with a girls' school in Manhattan, and the teachers are reporting that the girls aren't eating at lunch, and there's this sort of social contagion experience going on where because certain girls aren't eating or eating very little, others feel like they need to follow. And so you feel really embarrassed and ashamed to admit or to sort of give in to your your own hungers mm-hmm. um, in front of in, in an environment that's so meager. And I think that comes up for adult adults as well, males, females, all of us. There are so many, I think that people are so quick to make judgments about uh, others based on their observations of how, how others eat. Hmm. So, oh, you look so healthy. Oh, you're such a healthy eater. Oh, you're <laughs> slender. You look so healthy. You know, there's this association um, between what we observe on the surface and broader judgments about who the person is and, 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 and how healthy their lifestyle is. And how, how much in control they are, frankly. And how much control they have and how disciplined they might be, right? These are all qualities that are, are admirable, discipline, focus, the ability to put off, uh, pleasure in order to accomplish something. I think in terms of being in an environment where you're aware of judgment and you're self-conscious about your eating based on what others are eating, I think what we always go back to is that we all have to really be tuned into our own personal needs Mm -hmm. and as much as possible, try to be true to ourselves and our own needs I know that that's much easier said than done, but that's, of course, I guess the goal. I will I will share an anecdote, which is that I've been going through just a horrible anxiety time, and I've lost probably about ten pounds, and I get so much, I get so much positive feedback. And and what I what I have been saying literally is, oh, it's the anxiety diet. I've been having panic attacks. Would you like them? <laughs> you know, because it's like right, yeah. <laughs> And people probably respond with yes. I'll do anything. <laughs> I had I had I had a dear uh, family friend who um was a lifelong dieter and um she got cancer and when she had chemo she said I'm finally skinny. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's horrendous, right? Yes. It just says so much about our culture and this thin ideal that has been drilled into our heads since we were, you know, itty bitty. Why did you get into this work, Melissa? Do you have a personal history? Is this personal for you? Sort of. I actually came from a totally different career. I was a ballet dancer for many years. I trained in, in middle school and high school, and then I joined a ballet company after I graduated high school, and I danced professionally for seven years. And during those years in the company, there was uh, obviously in a pursuit like ballet, there's so much pressure on uh, appearance and line and body shape and weight. And absolutely without question, 
promotion at, for those dancers who are more on the slender side. Dance is just a world where you are going to get more opportunity if you fit the part. And so I really worked very hard throughout those years as a professional dancer working to fit the part and really struggled because keeping your weight down to that level really requires constant focus and attention on what you're eating and what you're not eating. And ultimately, for that reason and a few other reasons, I left ballet, but left with a real interest in eating struggles, eating difficulty, maybe also working with artists and dancers, but other artists as well uh, from the psychological perspective. And that's when I really began my journey into psychology. It almost seems like a stereotype to ask you this, but is is a certain quest for perfection a common thread also among your population? I would say so. There's a, a typical temperament that we see, particularly with anorexia. Those client, Most of our clients with anorexia tend to be as you mentioned, highly perfectionistic, very driven, very comfortable with things that are more familiar, uh, more introverted, very thoughtful as opposed to impulsive, deriving a lot of kind of pleasure and calm from a sense of order. And so those are the features that make an individual more likely to latch on to food and control of food and body weight as a way of coping. How might someone who's equally sort of type A and driven, but overeats manifest? Like what's what's a, a storyline that you see see there a lot? I think oftentimes it that drive and focus and perfectionism, unfortunately, have some consequences, which can be in general, just more tension build, build up and a higher stress level. And it calls on the individual to need just a lot of a lot of skills to be able to cope and manage with the feelings that come up when you when you have that kind of very perfectionistic, driven, um, success oriented mindset. And at times, all of us struggle to find healthy ways of coping and food can become is sort of the most immediately available tool. And it can be very quickly learned that it is effective in in self soothing. When we eat, there are neurobiological changes that occur that for many of us lead to a feeling of well being, right? When you're hungry, and you eat, you feel a sense of reward. And so it, it's, it's not so hard to see how that, that loop can be really appealing. At, at HBR, we have a truly global audience. So listeners who live in different cultures might be listening to this conversation and saying, these people are crazy. Why do they want to be so thin? This is, this is probably a pretty Western-centric, certainly American phenomenon. So I, I just, I did want to say that. Um, so someone, someone's listening out there and, um, they are, they are functioning. They are going to work. Uh, they may or may not, if it's a woman, be getting their period. They haven't been hospitalized, right? They're, they're still functioning, but they're listening to the show and they're thinking, wow, this sounds like me. 
I guess my question is, what are the signs that that people need to pay attention to if they're concerned about their disordered eating or about how their anxiety might be feeding into eating and, and vice versa? I think the first thing is that it's so important not to expect an eating problem to look like anything in particular. So you don't have to have a skeletal frame to have an eating disorder or to deserve and need help. The most important thing to remember is that eating disorders absolutely come in all shapes and sizes. If food and weight is taking up headspace and it's getting in the way of other pursuits that are important to you, then it means you need help. Uh, that these are conditions that are actually quite treatable. And it's just devastating to think that so many people suffer alone without getting adequate support so that they can address the, the problem and move on. And, and I, I truly do believe that it's possible to fully recover that a life free of the burden of food and body obsession is absolutely possible. And there are treatments that are time limited and very focused and concrete that are really structured to create sustained behavior change. I'd say the other really important thing to think about is that you really want to make sure that if you have a problem that is grounded in behaviors, like eating behaviors, that the treatment that you seek is designed to address behaviors. So that while a talk therapy where you're able to gain insight and understand more kind of the foundation of your struggles, if you want behavior change, you really need to engage in a treatment that is absolutely concrete, practical, and behaviorally oriented. What's that called? The main outpatient treatment for eating disorders is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy called enhanced CBT, enhanced cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's a treatment that was initially designed for bulimia nervosa, but has been expanded to treat uh, across all diagnoses. So it's really considered the leading treatment for uh, anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder on an outpatient basis. Uh, I have I have another question that is about sort of, a, it's a chicken or an egg question because every single person I see, whether it's a doctor or a friend, when you're feeling depressed or anxious will say, exercise, right? It, right yeah. it, it, raise those endorphins, you know, get rid of that stress. It's natural Prozac, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think that also, and, and certainly myself as a very sort of controlled, anxious person, I feel that um, for me, exercising is almost like controlled eating. You know, it, it, it takes up that headspace. It becomes a little obsessive. Can you talk about that and how someone who might, you know, have these issues should think about exercise as part of their stress management plan? Yeah, I think it's good to take your temperature on exercise and really ask yourself, do I exercise when I'm sick? Do I exercise when I'm injured? Do I exercise when I'm really exhausted? Do I exercise instead of doing other things that are important to me? Those are some really important questions. If you even think for a second, you might be someone who uses exercise in a way that might not be health promoting. 
for many people, exercise can feel like a chore and it's almost this experience of kind of forcing yourself through something unpleasant in a way that's not really supportive of overall health and wellness. So I think it's helpful to reflect on your use of exercise and your relationship with exercise and think about, about the experience and, and, and how you feel when you're doing it and how you feel afterwards. I, I think for, for people who have a tendency to use exercise in a way that might not be health promoting, it's sometimes helpful to, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because exercise can be helpful for your stress level. And it is good for your, for you physically in terms of maintaining strength and cardiovascular health. Uh, for people who are kind of on the line between having a, a really healthy exercise relationship and one that's not healthy, it can be helpful to think about ways to integrate exercise that might be more community oriented. So taking a class, being with other people, focusing a little bit more on some of the other benefits that you can achieve from exercise. There may be skill development that you can achieve through a kickboxing class. So the focus is not just on burning calories, but expanding a skill set and and achieving mastery in something. If you're a manager or a colleague who suspects something is going on with someone at work, um, when it comes to having an eating disorder, you know, maybe they're very, very skinny all of a sudden, or you hear them throwing up in the bathroom, I, I don't know. You know, how do you handle that? I mean, think about it, even just being in a meeting and someone might joke about someone never eating the brownie or eating too many brownies can have a really triggering impact on someone in a way that they will never see. And and food is something in, in our lives every day, as is work. We've they're together. How do how do we create a food healthy, mentally healthy workplace? It's mm, a really great question. In terms of approaching someone with concerns, that's so tricky. And I think there's certain legalities depending on the work environment. In a in a larger environment, my guess is that concerns should filter through HR, and and that may be handled in an appropriate way through HR. In a much smaller work setting, it's always tricky when a manager approaches an employee about a sensitive subject like this. So I think as much as people within the workplace can be pulled upon who are close friends of someone who might be displaying behaviors that are concerning, I, I think my experience with people who have been approached by friends is that generally they really appreciate it. Um, it, 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 the, what's been communicated to me is that so often you can be struggling and nobody seems to notice or care. So having somebody approach you and say, listen, I just wanted to make sure you're okay because I've noticed X, Y, and Z. And I want to let you know that I'm, I'm here and I care about you and I'm, I'm, I'm available to, to talk about it. Uh, that, that can be really helpful. Um, in terms of creating an environment that's sort of sensitive to food and body health, I'd say, uh, you know, saying, being careful, a little bit careful about what you say is, 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 is never a, a bad thing when it comes to commenting on someone's appearance or eating and weight 
and on commenting on someone's eating because you just never know where they're coming from with it. And so even comments that might seem complimentary, like, oh, I, I just never, I've never seen you put junk food in your mouth. How amazing. You just don't know what that means to the person that you're talking to. So just assume, you know, just always assume that it's a sensitive topic for somebody else and be sensitive about potentially just backing away from comments on somebody else's eating behavior. Every day at about 3 p.m., I begin to crave a drink, a drink of alcohol. Not at 3 p.m., but I think ahead to around 6 when my workday ends and uh, my mom shift begins. I think, what, what will it be today? Will it be vodka? Will it be wine, beer, a Manhattan, which is my favorite? The truth is, most days, it's nothing because... I can't physically seem to tolerate alcohol anymore, or I will have maybe one gluten-reduced beer. But that fantasy and that anticipation is with me, I would say, every day. I think that over many years, I have come to look at alcohol as the most effective stress and anxiety relief there is for me. I don't know if that resonates with any of you. I've taken lots of anti-anxiety meds, you know, everything from SSRIs to Clonopin to Xanax, you know, Valium, the lot. But I will admit for me, there's nothing like that sip of a cocktail. It's like my shoulders just drop. And while I'm not an alcoholic, I, over the years, realized that I have built a dependency on alcohol, and it scares the hell out of me. I've tried to quit drinking cold turkey so many times and have found that I, I just can't stop. And then the more I think about stopping, the more obsessed I am about drinking, and I get really, really, really angry at myself. You know, much is said, if you're a, a fan of Winston Churchill, much has been said and written about his struggle with his depression, his black dog, which it turned out was a nursery phrase that his nanny adopted, I think, for his foul moods. And, you know, some people say Churchill wasn't depressed. How could he have been depressed and done all he did? What is known is that he consumed about six glasses of wine and then six glasses of whiskey or, you know, spirits every day. And yet some scholars will say there's no way Churchill was majorly depressed or that he was an alcoholic or had an alcohol dependency. Look at all he achieved. Look, I am definitely I, I can't even put myself in the same sentence as Winston Churchill, that great man. But. I've interviewed enough leaders to know that you never know what's keeping them going or what's keeping them up at night or what's keeping their demons at bay. You don't really know about people's demons who look very successful from the outside at all. 
So for me, one of the things that I am really struggling with and really trying to think about is my dependency on alcohol as anxiety reducer and stress release. It is really, really triggered by hard days when one of my kids might come home from school with uh, a bad day, especially my my special needs kid, uh, travel. Oh my gosh, travel triggers it. And of course, anxiety. I'm working through it. I'm trying to have compassion for myself. And um, my therapist recently said, so you have a glass of whiskey at the end of the day. Is that really so bad? I don't know. (laughs) As an overachiever, I struggle with the idea of being dependent on something that is not good for me, although I suppose psychopharmacology is not good for you either. I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, using drinking or even over-exercise or any other sort of substance or behavior pattern as a self-medication for your anxiety. And uh, maybe we can work on this together. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and submit a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to tell us your story, drop me a note at anxiousachiever at gmail.com or you can tweet me at moraam. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Special thanks to the team at Harvard Business Review, my producer, Mary Dew, the team at Podcast Garage, and all of our guests who are telling us their stories from the heart. From the HBR Presents Network, I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever.